Father, we thank you. We thank you for this opportunity to spend time in your presence and spend time in your word. We thank you for this opportunity to hear from you. Because, God, we know you have something that you want to say to us tonight, God. You have something specific that you want to encourage each of us with tonight, Lord. You are a good father. You have wisdom for your kids tonight, Daddy. And so I thank you that as we dive into your word for tonight's podcast, God, I thank you that is, this is, I say it every week, but I, I know it to be ca- the case every week. So I'm going to say it again. I thank you that this is a specific word, Father. It's a right now word for every single person listening, Father. I thank you that even as I'm talking, I thank you that the Holy Spirit's going to be speaking to each and every listener and unpacking what needs to be revealed. I thank you for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you that rests upon this podcast tonight. I thank you that the eyes of our understanding have been enlightened and we know the hope of our calling. I thank you, Father, that you are in a, uh, in a, in a very big way, God, you are revealing identity <laughs> to us, God. You are, you are establishing us in our identity of who we actually are in Christ. I thank you that the Holy Spirit is working around the clock <laughs> to establish us in, in the truth of, of our union with Jesus. God, you are, you are integrating us with Jesus at a subconscious level, God. You are causing our minds to agree with the mind of Christ. And we are, we are abiding in the vine as a result, Father. Not just as a, as a theory, but Father, as a way of being, as a lifestyle. And so, Lord, we thank you that tonight you are going to encourage, you are going to uh, just provide instruction and direction. And you are going to lead us into more truth. You're going to reveal truth to us tonight. And so we receive it. We thank you for it. And we call it done. In Jesus' name. Well, awesome. I have been uh, kicking off a series. This will be the third, I guess, installment of this series that I've been doing. I've been calling it the gospel according to Shalise, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Uh, but I wanted to call it that because, you know, as I, you know, I've written my book now, uh, The Path. If you don't have a copy of that, you can go get that at thepathfreebook.com. Uh, and I, anyways, I've written that book and, you know, I continue to enroll students in my online school, emerge from all over the, really all over various countries now all over the place, um, I realized that there was not really one place that people could go to and just hear the gospel as I preach it. And hear the gospel uh, really as as a, a unique way, I guess. I mean, the gospel is the gospel you would think. But the, the reality of it is, is that it's not that simple. Uh, when you turn on podcasts or you listen to teachings from all over the place, all over, you know, especially here in America, you know, when a lot of the messages that you're going to hear on a week in and week out basis, and I don't mean to be critical, but the reality of it is, is that there's going to be mixture. There's going to be a mixture in that message where 
uh, it's going to have some legalism and some some works mixed in with really just what the gospel is. And that's a problem. It's a problem when we have Jesus and the cross plus anything else. You know, we are in Christ because of what Jesus did on the cross. We are, we have been born from above, born anew because of what Jesus did. And if you are like me who grew up in a traditional church, in a traditional denominational uh, setting, or for that matter, if you grew up in a lot of the non-denominational, even the charismatic settings, uh, we have been to a degree sold a bill of goods where we have been trying to be good Christians and trying to earn the blessings of God or the, the inheritance that belongs to us in Christ through good works. And those good works, I mean, they're good things. I mean, they're tithing, right? They're Bible study, they're prayer, they're, they're spending time with God, they're fasting. We have a lot of disciplines and activities that we do as Christians that honestly we tie to somehow, and a lot of times we don't even recognize we're doing it, we tie that somehow to whether we're being a good Christian or not. It's the idea that we can even be a good Christian is not even a biblical concept. And the reason that this is, the reason that I really wanted to take a step back and just teach the gospel according to Shalise is that from my perspective, when I preach the gospel, I primarily preach the gospel and teach the gospel and help people, help believers grow up into the fullness of the stature of Jesus by pointing out that the gospel is a message about you being one with God. It is first and foremost a message about Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is a message about this new creation that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross where the old man, our old sinful man, the 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 bad person, for that matter, the good person that we were apart from Christ, was crucified with Christ. And as a result of that crucifixion, we get to identify with Jesus completely. We are now not only crucified with Christ, but we were buried with Christ. We were, we were, we ra- we were raised from the dead with Christ, and we ascended with Christ, and we are now seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The gospel is a message about a new identity. It, it's, it's, it's a message about you becoming an entirely different species of being because of what Jesus accomplished for you. And for the most part, most of us don't live with a, a conscious moment-by-moment awareness of who we really are. And I can say this, because I grew up in a traditional denomination and I grew up in a traditional church and frankly through, it was until my 30s that I really heard the gospel. Although I had sat in church, I don't even know how many hours. If what, you would count it every Saturday, I mean every Sunday, every Wednesday night, really till I was 18. Hours and hours and hours sitting in church without a clue of who I was in Christ. 
without a clue of what it meant to be righteous by faith, without a clue about what the gospel actually, the victory that was mine in Jesus. I didn't, under, I didn't know that on the cross, Jesus became sickness. I didn't know that on the cross, Jesus became sin. I didn't know that on the cross, Jesus became the curse. And that everything that was in me that was not like Jesus was nailed to the cross with Jesus. Now that is, that is a gospel. This is a good news that, I mean, this is worth preaching. This is worth telling people about. And you notice, I haven't said a word about heaven and I haven't said a word about hell. And here I've been talking about the gospel, I don't know, for five minutes, 10 minutes now, and I haven't even mentioned heaven and hell. But that's not the way most Christians are taught the gospel. It's not the way most people hear the gospel message. And it's not the way that most people share the gospel message. And so I wanted to just kind of, you know, stop the, stop, stop the bus for a second and just, so people could know this is, this is the gospel. And yes, it's according to Shalise, but it's not just according to Shalise. This is the gospel according to the Bible. This is the gospel according to Jesus Christ. This is the gospel according to the apostle Paul. So I am, I want to jump off tonight and just talk about, I want to talk about this gospel. And I'm going to start in the book of Galatians because the book of Galatians is pretty interesting. In that the Apostle Paul was coming to the Galatians to talk to them about the gospel because the church that was in Galatia was hearing a bunch of mixture too. So that church was hearing a false gospel. In the same way that we in, you know, it's 2018 when I'm doing this podcast, in the same way that the church today is hearing a lot of, a lot of, you know, quote unquote gospel that is not the gospel. It is straight up a legalistic version of the gospel and it is maybe different. I mean, we're, you know, it's not like we're hearing uh, about observing the Jewish law on Sundays, although some people do. Some people actually believe, you know, in the Sabbath and they believe in all kinds of Jewish ideas uh, that came from the law that have nothing to do with new covenant Christians. But let me just begin here. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit of Galatians and I've got it up here on my computer. Let me just see which I'm going to read it in um, the Passion Translation. I'm going to start. I really like the Passion Translation. I'm just going to start here. Okay. Let me see if I can pull it up. For some reason, it's not coming. There we go. All right. Now, I'm going to start in chapter 1, verse 6. And this is the Apostle Paul coming to these guys here in... Galatia talking about a fake gospel. And that's actually what it says here in the the Passion Translation, which I find it's interesting. It says here in verse 6, I am shocked over how quickly you have strayed away from the anointed one who called you to himself by his loving mercy. I'm frankly astounded that you now embrace a distorted gospel. That is a fake gospel that is simply not true. 
There is only one gospel, the gospel of the Messiah, yet you have allowed those who mingle law with grace to confuse you with lies. Anyone who comes to you with a different message than the grace gospel that you have received will have the curse of God come upon them. For even if we or an angel appeared before you to give you a different gospel than what we have already proclaimed, God's curse will be upon them. I will make it clear. Anyone, no matter who they are, that brings you a different gospel than the grace gospel that you have received, let them be condemned and cursed. He says, I'm obviously not trying to flatter you or water down my message to be popular with men, but my supreme passion is to please God. For if all I attempt to do is to please people, I would not be a true servant of the Messiah. Now, I'm going to skip down here for a few moments, but I want to stop here and just tell you this is some strong, strong language coming from the Apostle Paul. He's literally saying that it's a fake gospel when you mix in law and grace. He's saying it's a distorted gospel when you mix in law and grace. And he says here that the people that preach this are going to be under a curse. Now, this is incredibly strong language. Now, I I personally, I call them the Christian police. They come after me on occasion. The Christian police come after me on occasion because they don't like the gospel that I preach. They, They don't necessarily like the gospel according to Shalise because... For me, it's very, very simple. The gospel is so, so simple in the sense that there is, it's all about Jesus. The the gospel is all about Jesus. It's about a righteousness that is ours by grace. It means that there is a perfection in us that comes by grace. In Christ, not separated from Christ, but in Christ, you are perfect. In Christ, you are holy. In Christ, you are blameless, it says in Ephesians chapter 1. In Christ, it says you are complete in Christ. See, there is no you apart from Christ. And a lot of these legalistic people who mix law and grace together, boy, number one, they're sin-focused. They are so focused on right and wrong and a, and a righteousness or a feeling of being good apart from Christ. And a lot of times that's what we are attempting to get with our Christian disciplines. We think that, you know, we tithe to be blessed. We think that we, we read our Bible because that's the, the right Christian thing to do. We, we pray because that's, the, that's what you do as a Christian. But all of that kind of thinking comes out of an identity that is separate from God, separate from Jesus. It's like you're trying to do something to become something. And the reality is, in Christ, you've already become something. Now, does that mean that we don't give? Does it mean that we don't read our Bible? Does it mean that we don't pray? Does it mean that we don't do these things? No, we do those things because of who we are. We don't do those things to become closer to God. How can you, how can you get any closer to God than being inside of God? 
How can you get any closer to God than Jesus living inside of you? Now, granted, we can have more knowledge of God. We can have more understanding of God. We can have an understanding of what that closeness is. But from a proximity standpoint, there is nothing to do for you and I to be complete in Christ. Because it is not a function of our action. It is a function of what Jesus has accomplished. So let me go over to Galatians chapter 3 really quick. And let me read this. It says, verse 1, What has happened to you Galatians to be acting so foolishly? You must have been under some evil spell. Didn't God open your eyes to see the meaning of Jesus' crucifixion? Wasn't he revealed to you as the crucified one? So answer me this. Did the Holy Spirit come to you as a reward for keeping all of the Jewish laws? No, you received him as a gift because you believed in the Messiah. Your new life in the anointed one began with the Holy Spirit giving you a new birth. So why would you so foolishly turn from living in the spirit by trying to finish by your own works? Have you endured all of these trials and persecutions for nothing? Let me ask you again. What does the lavish supply of the Holy Spirit in your life and the miracles of God's tremendous power have to do with you keeping religious laws? The Holy Spirit is poured out upon us through the revelation and power of faith, not by keeping the law. In verse 12 it says, But keeping the law does not require faith, but self-effort. For the law teaches, if you practice the principles of law, you must follow all of them. Verse 13, yet Christ paid the full price to set us free from the curse of the law. He absorbed it completely as he became a curse in our place. For it is written, everyone who is hung upon a tree is doubly cursed. Jesus, our Messiah, was cursed in our place and in so doing dissolved the curse from our lives so that all the blessings of Abraham could be poured out even on non-Jewish believers. And now God gives us the promise of the wonderful Holy Spirit who lives within us when we believe in him. Now, I want to stop here for a second here because this is talking about how Jesus became the curse of the law. Now, what is the curse? What is the curse of the law? Well, the curse is, I mean, if you go to, say, Deuteronomy 28, and I like Deuteronomy 28. It's a good way to kind of look at all the blessings of obeying the law and all the curses of obeying the law. Let's just go there for a moment because this will just kind of give you an idea about a little bit about what the curse of disobedience is. All right, in Deuteronomy 28, hold on, let me get in a different translation because it doesn't have that in the Passion one. Let's go to, we'll just go to the New King James Version. All right. It says in verse 1, Deuteronomy 28, it says, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all of his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord God will set you high above the nations of the earth, and all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you, because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then here's just the blessings. 
blessing, blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the country, blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground and the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall you be in your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed will you be when you come in and blessed will be when you go out. The Lord will cause the in, your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on your storehouses and all that you set your hand to. He will bless you in the land which the Lord God has given you. He will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you. If you can keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, all of the people of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will grant you a plenty of plenty in goods the fruit of your body and the increase of your livestock and in the produce of your ground and the land in which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. He will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give you the rain to land in your season and bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations but not borrow and the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, above and not beneath, if you heed the commandments of your Lord which I command you today and are careful to observe them. So you shall not turn aside from the words which I command you this day to the right or to the left to go after God's to serve them. Okay, so that is in verse 1 through 14, the blessings that come on you for obeying the law. Now granted, they're talking to the Israelites here, but this was the blessing of, let's call this the blessing of the law. Not the curse of the law, but the blessing of the law. But if you start here in verse 15, (laughs) this is when all the curses go. And I'm not going to read this whole chapter. You can go and read it, but it's some bad stuff. Let me just read a few lines here. It says, but if it comes to pass, but it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all of his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Here we go. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Cursed will you be when you come in and cursed will you be when you go out. The Lord will send you, send on you cursing, confusing, rebuke, and all that you set your hand to until you are destroyed, until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the plague cling to you until he's consumed you from the land. He will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with burning fever, with sword, with scorching and mildew. And anyway, you can go on and on here. This is some bad stuff. This is the curse. This is the curse of, of not obeying the law. Now, granted, there's a whole bunch more law than just what I'm reading here. This is just, you know, this is just obeying the commandments that Moses gave them. But I mean, if you read Leviticus... I mean, that thing, is, that's a whole bunch of thou shall nots. Whole bunch of, and not just the Ten Commandments, right? It's not just about lying and, and you know, coveting and, and murdering. I mean, this is all kinds of stuff. I mean, you can't cut your beard a certain way. I mean, you, certain, you couldn't eat certain things. I mean, this was a lot of rules here. A lot of rules. And in, you know, today... In today's church world, you know, I don't think most Christians would say, oh, you know, we need to, we need to go and obey Moses' law. It, but it's very, very subtle. It's a very subtle form of legalism that sneaks into our, our thinking because we think that we need to be good apart from Christ. 
that we need to follow the rules, be good Christian soldiers. Why? So that we can be blessed by God. And so that we can be in right standing with God. This is one of the reasons why, you know, we we say, oh, confess your sins. You know, confess those sins over and over and over and over again. Just make sure that you're confessing your sins. You know, it's like we, which is what the Catholics, our Catholic brothers and sisters do, right? They go to confession and they go to the priest and they confess their sins. But even in the charismatic circles, even in those, we, you know, we, we, we just are obsessed with sins, obsessed with what we're doing wrong. We, we deal with condemnation. We deal with guilt over this mess. Why? Because we, we are, we see the sin in our lives. We see the, the lawlessness in our lives. We see the areas in our lives which, which we mess up. And we think that that somehow affects our right standing with God. We think that somehow our behavior is an indication of our righteousness. But whenever we use that standard, whenever we start to make our behavior the measuring stick for our righteousness, we have come under the curse of the law. Because that is self-righteousness. It is a righteousness that we earn by doing the right things. And our righteousness cannot be earned. In fact, you have to be perfect. You have to be as perfect as God to be righteous. So self-righteousness is something that we, and it's so subtle a lot of times we don't even realize we're doing it. But here's how you know if you are struggling under the toil of the law or the curse of the law, and that is if you are feeling guilty, if you are feeling condemned, if you are feeling uh, shame, then you are operating out of an identity that is apart from Christ. And you are operating out of a religious system of trying to earn your status with God, earn your righteousness with God. And this, you know, in Galatians 3, when Paul's talking here, he's saying, you did not get the Holy Spirit by doing everything right. You didn't get the Holy Spirit because you were a good little girl or a good little boy. You got the Holy Spirit because you believed. You believed in what? You believed in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. You believed that Jesus is the Messiah. You believed that Jesus and, you know, the way I was taught it, died for your sins. But let me say this, Jesus died as you. He died as the unrighteous nature that was your nature in Adam. And so our relationship with the law has got to be crucified in our minds because it has been crucified from God's perspective. And if you have never really read the book of Galatians, or for that matter, the book of Romans, I mean, these, this, this is the gospel. It is a gospel of faith. It is a gospel of righteousness by faith. Let me just read a couple of scriptures here to you. Um, let's do this. Um, just take you to some basics here. So let's go to Ephesians 2.8. And this is what Ephesians 2.8 says. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, 
And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. In the New Living Translation, it says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. In the New Living Translation, it says, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Right? Let me just read it in a different translation. In the, in the New American Standard Bible, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then he goes right into Ephesians 2.10, right? For we are God's, in the New Living Translation, God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So, I mean, we've, we've read this scripture, but by grace through faith are we saved. It is not of your works. It's not of the good. And we, you know, a lot of us, we recognize this. We'll say, okay, we know we were saved by grace. So we didn't earn, we didn't earn our salvation. But then once we get into the kingdom, all of a sudden we, 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 never, we never stayed in that place where it says in Christ. We, we, did, we, 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 got, we got saved, but somehow we're still separate. And now we're still dealing with a righteousness that in Christ is a gift. And we aren't, we, aren't, we aren't really recognizing that we are righteous by faith. Now, I've shared this, I think, in a, last week's teaching, maybe the week before, but I, I, you know, this was a big deal for me. Because I had, how can, you grow up, how can you grow up in the gospel and never realize that you are righteous by faith in Jesus? You know, your righteousness changes everything. Not just your relationship with God, which it totally changes your relationship with God. Because guess what? It's a settled deal. You know what? You aren't, you aren't in God's good graces one day and out of God's good graces the next day based upon whether, you know, you were good that day. It's, he's not Santa, right? He doesn't have a, a, a naughty and nice list and he's not checking it twice. You know, he, no, he, He's not relating to you based upon your righteousness. And righteousness is one of those words that you hear and you're like, what does this actually mean, this righteousness? Because it's a Bible word. We don't walk around talking about righteousness, you know, in school, growing up, in public schools. You don't even hear these words. What is this righteousness? Well, righteousness literally has to do with your rightness, your goodness, your perfection. Are you right? Are you good? And when, when, when God settled this in Christ, when he put you inside of Christ and he called you a good boy or a good girl, this is your nature. Your nature is good. Because you have been joined to the Lord as one spirit with him. And let me tell you, you can't separate what has been joined to the Lord. 
it's like trying to, you know, I always say in Emerge, we do this thing where we put coffee and water together. I kind of do this experiment to show how our spirits have been joined to the Lord. And, you know, when you mix coffee and water, you can't, you can't unmix it. Why? It's a new creation. (laughs) When God mixed his spirit with your spirit, it became a new creation. And you can't go back and get the old out of the new. It's been mixed in there like cement. And it is brand new. It is a brand new species. It's a new thing. And where this old thing dominates our life is honestly just in our thinking. We're like caterpillars that have become butterflies. We went through the this new creation process in the cocoon where God mixed his spirit and our spirit in the cocoon, and we came out this new creature, but yet we still see ourselves like a caterpillar. And we're still living out of a caterpillar's mindset. And we don't recognize that there's a whole new way of living, of being, of functioning, of thinking, of seeing, of hearing. This is an entirely new kingdom life. You have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. And you are a citizen of heaven right now. You are a carrier of heaven right now. Right now. Let's look at that scripture about he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. It's in, let me get there. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 15. It says, don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, the Apostle Paul is actually here in 1 Corinthians comparing our union with God to the sexual union that happens when two become one through the most intimate type of, you know, act that two human beings can, can actually engage in. There is this union that is being, I know it's in the, in the, in the, you know, crammed in the middle here of, of talking about prostitutes and all kinds of things. But the point here is he's saying you shouldn't engage in sexual sin because you've been joined to the Lord. So don't join yourselves in immoral immoral behavior. And he tells you what? Because you've been joined to the Lord. He's not saying if you do this, you won't be joined to the Lord. He's saying because you are joined to the Lord, don't do this. You know, when you start to read the shall nots in the new covenant... It's because they are there, right? I mean, God says, you know, you know, love, love is the new command. I mean, we are to love and we are to abstain from sin. I mean, sin is stupid. I'm not giving you a license to sin. I'm giving you the reason why 
You don't have to sin. It's totally different when you recognize who you are. When you recognize who you are, it's not, it, all of that is not, becomes unattractive. And it doesn't define who you are. God defines who you are. But this concept of being joined to the Lord here, one spirit with the Lord, this is a, it's an established reality that you did not earn. You didn't earn your union with God. You didn't earn your union with Christ. You believed and you received. But this righteousness is a gift. And just like every other gift that you have ever gotten, you aren't paying for it with anything, with works. You're not paying for it by being good. You've received it and it's made you good. It may sound it may sound like I'm splitting hairs here, but it's a big this is a big difference. It's a big difference in trying to be good and recognizing that you are good. See, the law itself, it's a tricky little thing. Because the law that scriptures teach us, the law is actually the strength of sin. And so when we, when we focus on the rules, when we focus on trying to be something by doing something, it backfires. It backfires. The more we try to do it, the more we realize we can't do it. And the more you try not to, you know, when you say, hey, you can't have that chocolate cake, don't think of that chocolate cake. I mean, the more you try not to think of the chocolate cake when you're not supposed to have the chocolate cake, you know this to be the truth. When you can't have something, it's like it just turns on desire for it. That's what the law does. In fact, in Romans 7, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about. In Romans chapter 7, and I've heard a lot of people talk about Romans 7 like this is them, like this is their their lot in life, this is their struggle in life. And let me just read a little bit of Romans 7 here. It says, oh, I'll just start in... Verse 4, it says, So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. It says, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us. Oh, I'm going to get in a different version of this because sometimes these translations are so bad. The NIV is the worst translation to read Romans 7 in because it makes it sound like we have two two natures, and we do not. Some other uh, translations do a better job of this, and the Passion does a great job at this. So let me read this one. It says, when we were merely living natural lives, 
the law, through defining sin, actually awakened sinful desires within us, which resulted in the bearing the fruit of death. But now that we have been fully released from the power of the law, we are dead to what once controlled us. Our lives are no longer motivated by the obsolete way of following the written code so that we now may serve God by living in the freshness of a new life in the power of the Holy Spirit. So what shall we say about all this? Am I suggesting that the law is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that gave us a clear definition of sin. For example, when the law said do not covet, it became the catalyst to see how wrong it was for me to crave what belongs to someone else. It was through God's commandment that sin was awakened in me and built its base of operation within me to stir up every kind of wrong desire. For in the absence of the law, sin hides dormant. I once lived without a clear understanding of the law, but when I heard God's commandments, sin sprang to life and brought with it a death sentence. The commandment that was intended to bring life brought me death instead. In verse 11, it says, Sin, by the means of the commandment, built a base of operation within me to overpower me and put me to death. So then we have to conclude that the problem is not with the law itself, for the law is holy, and its commandments are correct and for our good. So did something meant to be good become death to me? Certainly not. It was not the law, but sin unmasked that produced my spiritual death. The sacred commandment merely uncovered the evil of sin, so it could be seen for what it was. So we know that the law is divinely inspired and comes from the spiritual realm, but I am a human being made of flesh and trafficked trafficked as a slave under sin's authority. I'm a mystery to myself, for I want to do what is right, but I end up what my moral instincts condemn. I end up doing what my moral instincts, instincts condemn. And if my behavior is not in line with my desire, my conscience still confirms the excellence of the law. And now I realize that it is no longer my true self doing it, but the unwelcome intruder of sin in my humanity. For I know that nothing good lives within my flat, in the flesh of my fallen humanity. The longing to do what is right is within me, but the willpower is not enough to accomplish it. My lofty desires to do what is good are dashed when I do the things I want to avoid. So if my behavior contradicts my desires, To do good, I must conclude that it's not my true identity doing it, but the unwelcome intruder of sin hindering me from being who I really am. Through my experience of this principle, I discover that even when I want to do good, evil's ready to sabotage me. Truly deep within my true identity, I love to do what pleases God. But I discern another power operating in my humanity, waging a war against the moral principles of my conscience and bringing me into captivity as a prisoner of the law of sin, this unwelcome intruder in my humanity. What an, what an agonizing situation I am in. So who has the power to rescue this miserable man from this unwelcome intruder of sin and death? I give all my thanks to God. For his mighty power has finally provided a way out through our Lord Jesus, the anointed one. So if left to myself, the flesh is aligned with the law of sin. But now my renewed mind is fixed on and submitted to God's righteous principles. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says, so now the case is closed. There remains no accusing voice of condemnation against those who are joined in life union with Jesus, the anointed one. 
For the law of the spirit of life flowing through the anointing of Jesus has liberated us from the law of sin and death. For God achieved what the law was unable to accomplish because the law was limited by the weakness of human nature. I could keep reading, but let me just stop here for a moment because what this is saying, what Romans 7 is saying is this is Paul struggling under, honestly, the curse of self-righteousness. It is this curse of trying to do what is right, never being good enough. No matter how hard you try, there's always something more to do. And then you know not what, you know what you're not supposed to do. And that's the very thing you end up doing. You don't want to do it. You don't want to do it. You don't want to do it. And you're just, oh, there you next thing you know, you did it. I don't want the pie. I don't want the pie. I don't want the pie. Oh gosh, I ate the pie. You know, and it could be anything. I mean, this is, this, this works in, with people in bondage to pornography. This works. I mean, this is why, so many Christian approaches to try to set people free from sin ends up putting them under the law and actually ends up making it worse than actually setting them free. I did a series of um, posts not too long ago based upon a book that I read called um, Boy Erase, and it was basically talking about gay conversion therapy. And I mean, if you want to read a, a, a testimony of this, that book is pretty much a testimony of how a lot of the Christian world has tried to, quote unquote, minister the gay out of gay, you know, out of the homosexual community. And in this book, in this particular book, uh, this this young man's parents were you know, very fundamental pastors, and they end up sending them to this ministry that, uh, at the end of the day, what I really just want to say about that is that it was a Roman 7 approach. And the powerful thing about the gospel is that it sets you free from this fight in Romans 7. As a matter of fact, it just eradicates this whole system of trying to be good. It, it severed your relationship with the law completely. And it just made you good by putting you inside of God. And when you start to teach people, including homosexuals, that they are righteous by faith, that their righteousness is not based upon their sexual identity, that their righteousness is not based upon, and again, you could choose your flavor of whatever. I mean, if this offends you, you could, I could use, you know, trying to set an alcoholic free by banging him over the head with the law. And the truth is that their righteousness is not based upon their sobriety. Woo, you better hear me. Their righteousness is not based upon their good intentions even. Their righteousness is based on Jesus Christ. Now, I use this, I, I use this homosexual argument on, on Facebook and I use it because it stirs up this religious spirit like nothing else. I tell you, Christians just have to tell you that homosexuality is a sin if you are going to bring it up. Right? And they, they, they just want to tell you that you have to love the sinner 
and hate the sin without recognizing that just by saying that they are it, it is it is it is a conversation that is antichrist I, i'm just going to say it that strong when we focus on people's sin instead of their righteousness we put them under the law and when we put them under the law <laughs> We are giving strength to the very sin that we are so in hatred of. It is absolutely Romans 7 in action. What if we just started telling alcoholics and started telling, whatever, just started telling people, you know what, you're righteous. In Christ, you're righteous. I didn't see any of these, you know, I'm not saying they don't exist, but I didn't see these ex-gay ministries that I read about in this book specifically come in and telling these guys or these gals, you know what, you're righteousness in Christ. You're a new creation. You've been translated from the kingdom of darkness. There is more to you than your sexuality. You are, you are divine human. You are divine. And it is not based on who you find attractive and who you don't find attractive. It's based on Jesus's death on the cross. And somehow the, the Western church has even somehow tied like their salvation to this. Like they've got to clean up their act in order to even be a Christian. Like you have to be sinless to be a Christian. Wait a second. I thought the whole concept of being a Christian honestly was that we are sinless in Christ. And so having a sinlessness apart from Christ is a form of self-righteousness and it is a form of hypocrisy and it is a false gospel. Expecting people to have a holiness apart from Christ is anti-Christ. Let me say it again. Expecting people to have a holiness apart from Christ is antichrist. Why? Because it is a false gospel. It puts people in the position of having to have a righteousness that is their own. And there is no righteousness apart from Christ. I pray that I, you know, when I talk this way, that it's so easy to offend. I'm not meaning to offend anything but that religious spirit. And I, I'm not even, I'm not against people. I'm against putting the law on people. When you discover your true identity in Christ, when you discover that you are holy and that you are perfect and that you are righteous because of what Jesus did for you, do you know how thankful a notorious sinner like me actually becomes? When you have tried to be good and no matter how, tried, you've tried to stop drinking. I'm not, that's not me. I'm, I wasn't my deal, but let's just say you, you're an alcoholic. You've tried. And man, you, 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 you've got such a, not only do you have a, a, a problem with alcohol, but let's be clear, you've got a problem with yourself too. When you, when you are in bondage like that and you want to stop and you can't, you beat yourself up for not being able to do it, which actually is a part of the reason you do it. 
But when you start to teach people that, oh my goodness, you are righteous in Christ, you are holy, you're righteous. And guess what? You're not an alcoholic. God didn't call you that. And guess what? You're not even your behavior. Let me tell you, you get more holy (laughs) by believing you're already holy than you ever get holy believing that you are a horrible, nasty, disgusting sinner. Your image of yourself and the way that you see yourself is the, is the, the root of, of your behavior. So when you receive the righteousness of God and you start to believe that you are righteous, you, you are more holy on accident than you ever could be on purpose. And so it is not a message that condones somehow like, oh, it's just not even a message about sin. It's a message about righteousness. It's a message that the problem of sin has been dealt with. That Jesus became sin for you. And he made you righteous. Your relationship with sin has been severed. You are dead to sin. You are dead to that old identity. This is Romans 6 now. You are dead. You have severed your relationship with sin. And now you're alive to God. You're in God. And I'll tell you, when you start to meditate on those truths that I'm in Christ, that I am holy, I am one with Jesus. I have been, man, my relationship with sin has been severed. I don't, I don't, it has no power over me. Sin has no more power over me because of the cross. Jesus, you have delivered me from the power of sin, the power of death. Thank you, Jesus. You, you become this is a completely different focus and a com- the power that comes into your life. It's the power that overcomes sin without human effort. And so I, this righteousness thing though is a big deal. It's, I think it's a misunderstood word and it's a misunderstood concept. And whenever I, whenever you preach like this, I'll tell you that, you know, the, the tendency always is to say, well, well, Shalise, what about, what about this? What about this? What about this scripture? What about this scripture? What about this scripture? Right? And I'm happy to answer those questions. What about this scripture? What about this scripture? But you have to take those scriptures in context. You cannot take, you know, three little scriptures out of an entire epistle and form a doctrine around that. You actually have to look at the, the, the book in its entirety. You have to look at the message in its entirety. And you have to have a foundational understanding that the gospel message is a union message to truly read the Bible, specifically the New Testament, to read that and for it to make sense. You know, I remember trying to read scriptures like Romans 8, 1. There is now, now, there is now therefore, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I mean, I kind of would just skip over the in Christ Jesus part and be like, oh, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So I'd be like, well, but I would still think of myself as separate from Jesus. And so I didn't understand why there wouldn't be condemnation. I just, just, but when you step into Christ, 
all of a sudden it starts to make sense. Well, of course there's no condemnation for those that are in Jesus because we're in Jesus. There's no condemnation for Jesus. And there's no you or me that exists apart from Christ, except in our unrenewed minds. So I pray that, I just pray that something is sticking tonight. I just pray that, that something is, is, is shining through that image of who you are that you have in your heart, that you, that you, the way you see yourself. I pray that, that tonight the, the mirror of the word is reflecting a new image of yourself to you and that you can see yourself as you truly are, as the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, as one who has been joined to the Lord. You know, I, I hear, but Shalise, what happens when you sin? What, what do you do if you, if you miss it or you, or, you know, you, you do something wrong? Well, what do you do? Well, you recognize that that's not who you are, that you're acting out of character. That that, that, I mean, there's no, nothing wrong with saying, Lord, I, gosh, I'm sorry I did that. I can't believe I did that. But here's the thing, trying to stop that without the power of the Holy Spirit, it's God's job to empower you to overcome the behaviors in your life that are not like Jesus. The truth sets you free from that. <laughs> Those behaviors, it, you know what that is? That, that's just you operating out of a lie, some type of lie, a lie about that behavior, a lie about who you are, and so the Holy Spirit will guide you into truth about that. The right way to pray about those things is to say, Lord, show me the truth. Lead me into freedom. I'm not in agreement with that behavior. If I, if I, wasn't, if I was in agreement with that behavior, I wouldn't feel bad about it. It's kind of like the Apostle Paul said, right? The fact that you feel bad about it at all just tells you you're not in agreement with it. But recognize it doesn't define you. Recognize this is, it's, it's training in righteousness. It's instruction in righteousness. You are growing in the manifestation of who you are. And while you're growing, you're not condemned that you haven't already achieved it. So what do you do? You just say, Lord, I see that. Thank you that it does not define who I am. Thank you that from your perspective, I'm already free from that. And I'm trusting you to lead me into the manifestation of freedom, of more and more freedom. Holy Spirit, what is the truth that you want me to know about that? Why am I jealous? Why do I feel this way? And let the Holy Spirit illuminate whatever the thinking is that's behind that behavior. It's a thinking problem. It's not an identity problem. Sin is a thinking problem. And the Holy Spirit will shine the light on your thinking, change your thinking with his truth as we sit with him and grow with him. But 
it is not defining who you are. It's kind of like, you know, we teach our, you know, we teach parents not to tell their kids, like, okay, yeah, their behavior, we're, we're, we're correcting this behavior, but we're not, we're not saying they're bad. You're not a bad kid because you, you did something wrong. It doesn't define who you are. It does not define who you are. It honestly just indicates how you think. <laughs> so what's left for a Christian is our minds need to be renewed. And the very first place to start with that is recognizing your true identity and recognizing that you are righteous by faith because you have been joined to the Lord. You are one spirit with him. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. You are in Christ. You live and move and have your being inside of God. And, and the more that you begin to abide in that true identity, guess what? The more you will begin to manifest the fruit of that identity. Amen? All right. Well, Father, I just thank you that you are stripping away the false dichotomies and the false ideas that have defined who we are. And you are establishing us in righteousness, God. You are, you are teaching us that our rightness is an unchangeable part of our identity because it's based in who you created us to be in Christ when you recreated us in Christ. And so, Lord, we just, we just thank you. We thank you. And, and, Lord, we just begin to acknowledge all of the good things that are in us in Christ Jesus. We, we just begin to acknowledge who we really are, that we are holy, that we are perfect, and that, God, there is no condemnation for, for us because we are in Christ. We thank you that you are transforming us by the renewing of our minds. Thank you that there's this transfiguration that's going on, God, the, as we renew our minds. Thank you that the things that are inside of us in Christ Jesus are becoming visible outside of us as we renew our minds. And so, Holy Spirit, we give you permission to renew our minds to who we are in Christ and to renew our minds about the ways of being that come out of that perfection, come out of that holiness, the ways of being, that, the ways of acting, the ways of behaving, Father, that match up with our true identity. And I just thank you, Lord, that for people that struggle under guilt and shame, Lord, I thank you that you are cleansing their conscience. I thank you that you, by just this message, Father, I thank you that condemnation and shame are just falling off of people. I thank you that there is a righteousness that is becoming experiential for them, God. I pray that you would, I just pray for encounters, Father, with their righteousness instead of just a focus on all the things that they have felt that were wrong. I pray, Father, that you will begin to help them understand what you have made right. And I thank you that as that happens, Lord, the things that, goodness, they've been fighting for sometimes very long times, God, I thank you that that's just falling away as they awaken to righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Well, I encourage you guys, if uh, these messages are blessing you, to head on over to Shalise.com and join the ministry, partner with the ministry, uh, give to the ministry, support the work, uh, support the the gospel message that uh, is being preached, and setting people free. I'll tell you, there is an, the, the testimonies that we are getting every single week are just amazing of the encounters that people are having with God and just the experiences that they are having uh, with God and an understanding of the gospel as as a result of the ministry. So I just bless you. I bless your giving. And I just thank you for tuning in. We will see you. Merry Christmas. Uh, We will... This will be probably the last podcast we do before the Christmas holiday. So uh, Merry Christmas, and we will see you in the new year.